Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about Thomas writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And on this month's Paper Scraps, we will be discussing ideal writing conditions, writing essentials, and the predatory contracts. Plus, we'll be talking about the latest TV running news, including the WGA victory and systemic problematic behaviors in our industry. All right. And first up, we have a question from one of our listeners, Varta. Yes. And she says, hi there, paper team friends. Hope this email finds you healthy and safe. As we're nearing the anniversary of the lockdown, I've been having interesting conversations with my fellow writers. We've been discussing our writing routines and how they have changed during the pandemic. A lot of my friends who were used to writing in public spaces had to adjust to working from their desks and others who were used to writing at home encountered different types of issues. With their neighbors at home all day, every day, there was so much noise and distractions. I'm sure you're familiar with that. (laughs) My friends can't wait for everyone to go back to work so they can get some uh, writing done. This was a long-winded setup for my question, but here it comes. What are your ideal writing conditions and what do you do when you do not have them? Do you need certain writing essentials or else it messes up your flow? Like a special brand of coffee or your favorite snack. Maybe you have to wear your lucky socks every day, or at least I hope not. Also, how do you break up your writing hours? Do you do writing sprints, clock in a certain amount of hours slash number of pages or scenes? And most importantly, how do you reward yourself after a successful day? And how do you deal with the guilt when you did not fulfill your quota? Sorry, this was more than one question, but I want to know all about your writing process, including the type of chair and keyboard you use. Just kidding. That's Varda. I'll just say this. The comment by Nick was my own. That was not Varta, but uh, <laughs> Nick has his own uh, neighbor issues. Yeah. If you hear any uh, little kids yelling in the background, we apologize. I cannot help them. Yeah. But those are great questions from Varta. Obviously, everyone is a little bit different in how they write and the conditions that they need in order to write the best. And a lot of people, it takes a little bit to discover that too. You know, you don't just have the perfect writing process from day one when you sit down writing. I find for me personally, I like having a dedicated space to sit down and write and concentrate. I find that if I'm writing on my bed, or writing on the couch. It's way too easy for my body to associate that with relaxing and being distracted and watching the TV. It certainly helps to have a desk or even if it's just the kitchen table, wherever it is for me to kind of sit up straight, look at my thing and know that I'm here to work. I definitely agree with your feeling of essentially separating the space between work and play, especially if you want writing to be your career or if it already is your career, it's important to separate that workspace from that play space. Personally, I also have my own desk. It's actually a standing desk desk and a motorized standing desk in case I need to sit down occasionally. But I do have that in a separate part of my apartment. And sometimes I will actually go in the living room if I have my laptop with me. I kind of sometimes need a change of a space, physically speaking. So I'll go there to write. And I'm also the kind of person that likes to walk and talk to myself when I when I write or think of a dialogue and so forth. Definitely pacing around in my living room is much better than, for example, my bedroom. So having that ability or that spatial awareness is definitely something that I need and why personally, even before the pandemic, I was not someone who was writing in public spaces. I'm definitely someone who prefers the private comfort of my office or my home. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've tried writing in coffee shops and things like that before, and it's not exactly for me either. To me, it's more of a distraction than it is a sort of a white noise. 
Other things that I find helpful is listening to music when I write. That is more of a kind of a white noise for me. I'll have something on that's just like chill, you know, the kind of like study music that you find on YouTube and whatever. It's like either chill, relaxing, like jazz or guitar or keyboard, or sometimes like a very lo-fi kind of a chill step or whatever they call that. Anything that doesn't have lyrics in it to kind of distract you, I think is particularly helpful for me. And often stuff that feels in the tone of the show that I'm writing, you know, if I'm writing something that has sort of a Celtic mythology in it, I'll listen to music that sounds like that. So that's another thing that helps me concentrate on what I'm doing and get in the spirit of it. Yeah, that's interesting. I do something similar in the sense that I find music to be more of a Trojan horse for me and that I'll start playing a piece of music, maybe something with lyrics actually occasionally or soundtracks of uh, movies and so forth. But then there's going to be a point when I'm writing where I'm like, oh, I, I need to really concentrate on this. I can't have distractions. And so that'll be, you know, several minutes in. And so I can stop my music, but the music allowed me to enter that mind space of uh, being able to be more creative. So I definitely hear you. Now, I will say that when it comes to actual draft writing and writing scenes and dialogue, I actually like to listen to more poppy music that can match that tone. And I say poppy music because in this specific instance, I can write a show that's more poppy. Obviously, if it's a very serious drama, I'm not going to be writing on pop music. That would be more, you know, soundtracks and so forth. So I definitely echo a Nick's sentiment of finding music that matches the vibe of the content that you're writing, whether you are actually listening to that while you write or in between sessions when you're brainstorming. I also find that to be very helpful. Yeah. And I've had to write kind of big action scenes for a sort of a superhero type thing. I've literally listened to like the Avengers soundtracks or occasionally writing for Final Space. I've listened to the Final Space soundtrack while I'm doing it as well. So <laughs> little things like that I find uh, are helpful for me. In terms of writing hours, I kind of just take what I have and what I'm given. I like to try to block them out at a certain time and say, all right, at 8 p.m. I'm going to start writing. And I don't often put like an end time on that, although you can if you find that helpful to go, all right, I'm going to get an hour done a day or whatever that can be useful to. But as long as I know that there's a particular time in my day and my week that I've blocked out to get this stuff done before it's due, that's particularly helpful for me. But I'm not sort of timing myself or doing sprints. I'm just doing it kind of as it comes to me. I do different things depending on where I'm at in the process. I often do something that I call lockdown mode. This was before pandemic happened, but I like to be under strict deadlines and then I'll torture myself for X amount of time until I have a draft of a script done, especially if it's something like a first draft where the goal is to just have it done. It doesn't have to be perfect or good or anything like that. And so I get to a point where I essentially have the final draft document open. Uh, hopefully at that point I have an outline or something that I can work off, obviously. But from that point on, I'll essentially be awake working on that document until X goal is met. So for example, if I have 20 scenes to write, then I'll stay awake until I have accomplished the task of writing those 20 scenes. And I know that's not necessarily a healthy way of doing things, but it is a more productive way for me to achieve that goal of writing those pages. That's in part because I know the way my mind works and the hours I'm more in tune with my work. So what I mean by that is it's actually easier for me to fall asleep later, as in something like 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. and work through that night, as opposed to waking up very early, so waking up at maybe 4 a.m., 5 a.m., to get me that extra time before in the morning to work on those pages. I know that I'm more productive, maybe ironically enough for some people, much later in the day than I am first thing in the morning. 
And so that's why I ended up doing this lockdown mode thing where I'll just have the page open or document open until I'm done. Now, that's not necessarily the same process for every single step. If it's something like an outline, it may not be as a clear cut because outlines, putting aside obviously the fact that if I'm on staff, I have to deliver an outline. But for my own projects, I don't have to deliver an outline in theory, maybe for my reps, but overall, I don't have to deliver an outline. So I'm not under the same uh, gun, quote unquote. And so in that capacity, it's much more fluid in terms of what my running hours are. Yeah. And in terms of kind of what you were asking about uh, rewards and uh, guilt for not doing what you're doing, I can kind of see a way in which Alex's system is kind of, you know, once you're done with this, you get your reward, which is sleep and (laughs) not being locked down or whatever it happens to be, as opposed to kind of dreading waking up early and trying to get something done and all that sort of thing. But I don't know, I find personally, I don't respond as well to that level of kind of (laughs) torture, as Alex put it. For me, I think it's important to be kind to yourself and to recognize that, all right, I've written two pages. Maybe that's enough for tonight. I've done a good job. You know, if you're in the flow of it, keep going. Absolutely. But don't sit there and force yourself to go. If you're not feeling it anymore, just pick it up again tomorrow night. And as long as you keep getting two pages done every day, eventually you're going to get there. So that's kind of the approach that I like to take, but you do have to be careful with over bargaining with yourself and procrastinating and rationalizing and then ending up doing it all the night before the deadline. I definitely acknowledge that what I'm doing is not necessarily the healthiest way of accomplishing those goals. I will say that, first of all, I'm not doing this for every single draft or every single thing I'm writing. Obviously, it would be kind of like a one-off exceptional thing, especially under a tight deadline. And as I mentioned at the top, mostly for the first draft. So not every draft, because when you're doing revisions, it's not quite the same constraints as going from an outline until you have 60 pages of a script. And in that capacity, you have to be slightly tougher on yourself in terms of accomplishing those goals. It's something that we've talked about even before in the idea of, you know, trying to wait for the muse as opposed to creating some sort of routine that gets you to write. I definitely fall more into the latter part of that idea. Now, there's a couple more things that Varto asked us that I did want to touch on. One was in terms of writing essentials, especially physical things. Do I need a special brand of coffee or favorite snack and so forth? Personally, I do not need anything specific in terms of what I eat or drink, although I'm a big fan of diet Snapple peach, uh, as my friends will tell you. But overall, I don't need any of those things. I can just have a glass of water. That's perfectly fine. In terms of hardware, though, I am a big mechanical keyboard person. So I don't want to filibuster this podcast for 30 minutes about keyboards, but I am a big mechanical keyboard person. So if you want to go on the mechanical keyboard subreddit, I'm sure you can find more about that cult. But in terms of isolation, also, I love my noise canceling headphones. I'm a big fan of my Bose QuietComfort 2. That's not product placement. That's just the pair that I own. And whilst they were expensive, they were not cheap. It's definitely a purchase that I consider to be one of my best purchases I've ever made in my entire life. So that's the kind of hardware that if it allows you to be more in the zone, more focused on the work at hand, and in my case, it's because it's a Bluetooth headphone, noise canceling and so forth, I can pace around. I can listen to music and go around my place, as I mentioned before, cordlessly. So I don't need to worry about any of that. And I can hear my songs or music or thoughts or whatever I need to really focus and be in the zone. Yeah, for me, I don't think I have any particular essentials outside of some sort of laptop or computer to write on. I'm not one of those people who writes everything by hand and transcribes it later or anything like that. I prefer to have my headphones on too when I'm listening to music. They're not necessarily noise-canceling ones, but it certainly helps block out everything else that's going on around me. If it's in the morning, I do like to have coffee, but that's just part of my regular everyday thing. In the evening, I'll often have some like tea or something, so I'm not quite uh, <laughs> drinking coffee at midnight, but giving myself a little bit of a 
boost when I need the energy or some snacks, things like that. So I guess I'm a little bit boring. I think I can kind of function with what I have on hand wherever I am, but some things make it a little easier than others. Damn, Nick, can you be less perfect, please? And less <laughs> holistic, all these things. Oh yeah, sorry. And I do need to write with a quill filled with my own blood. So otherwise it just won't happen. Just one little Oh yeah, thing. the good old blood quill. And Silent Bob in prison writing letters. All right. Speaking of <laughs> prison, I don't know if that's a really good transition, but I know you want to bring something up in terms of predatory contracts. Yeah. So recently somebody reached out to me and they were saying that uh, they had this agent or manager looking to kind of sign them to a contract. And that instantly always <laughs> raises some flags in my mind because I've been with a number of managers and agents at some of the larger agencies and middle-sized agencies, and I've never actually had to sign a physical contract to be represented by them. It's always been more of a handshake kind of verbal agreement. The only thing I've ever signed is a check authorization for when I get paid for my work, they get to take their cut of 10%. So naturally, I was kind of curious, and I took a look at this contract for this person. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer. I can't provide any legal advice, but I could kind of give a general idea from my time, both being a writer, having contracts in that regard, and being a creative executive. And yeah, this thing was just kind of riddled with additional red flags. A lot of things in there, like saying that they're not actually representing this person. They'd just be representing their projects, but they would also take a cut of the gross of the project if it got sold, but then also perhaps take a commission, even though they said they weren't representing. There weren't really like time limits that expired on this thing. It's like after 12 months, you would have to give them written notice if you wanted it to expire. So it would just be in perpetuity. If we introduce you to another company later and you sell it through them, then you owe us money. And if they introduce you to another person and then you sell it, you owe us money. There is some level of that that is normal in options and contracts for things. You know, they don't want to essentially introduce you to a buyer and then the contract expires and then you just make a deal with them two weeks later. So there's a level of that, which is okay. But this thing was just going way further than anyone could expect. And it clearly wasn't written by an actual lawyer. Yeah, I was also looking at that contract. And whilst we are not lawyers and we can't really advocate for, oh, this is how you should do a contract, we can definitely look at something like this document and see all the red flags that <laughs> are really glaring in this document. I mean, first of all, I found multiple typos and other issues just on a basic level. So clearly you can tell that this was not properly proofed and written by an actual law firm in any shape or form. But in terms of the clauses, like Nick mentioned, I mean, some of those clauses are not necessarily enforceable. But regardless of how enforceable or realistic they are, as soon as you become entangled in them, it causes a lot of issues on the back end, especially at the point where you want to sell a project or you are the one taking ownership over your own content. They will take you to court, probably, or they want to at least bully you into believing that they're going to take you to court. Those are red flags to watch out for very, very early on. And even things like the document said something along the lines of a client will be available for all pitch meetings slash sessions. What does that even entail? If I have a funeral, I can't go to the funeral because I have to go to this pitch meeting? Or is it the management company actually has some deals with specific other companies that may be in the gray area and you're forced to work with those people as opposed to other people that you might have a better relationship with? The whole point here is that you have to be very careful when you look at these contracts and really go to people who are more well-versed than either yourself or even the agency or management company you want to sign with. Because again, they have their own incentive. Ideally, those incentives align with yours. But as we've seen with, for example, the WGA fight with agencies recently, some of those people do not have the same overlap of incentives as writers as you do. 
So you have to protect yourself. Don't necessarily give those people the benefit of the doubt, especially when it comes to actual contracts, anything you put your signature on that is usually binding. So be very careful when it, you get to that point. Yeah, I kind of wish we didn't use the term sign when referring to a signing with your reps mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, because usually you don't have to sign anything, like I said, right. other than a check authorization. So I think it gives people the false impression that there's some uh, big document you got to sign and then you're officially repped and then you can go and tell everybody about it on Twitter. I would just say in those cases when there are contracts, it's usually because this person, whether it's usually a manager, wants to also be a producer. And so they're trying to kind of lock away the rights to your material. And that was another thing that was in the contract was anything that you sell over the period that we're representing this one project, we have an ownership right to. It's like, is this a first look deal? Like, you know, is this an overall deal that you're signing? It's just kind of, you got to be really careful with that stuff. And I think so many people are so eager to jump at the first opportunity that's presented to them. You know, we all work so hard for so long on your material, getting your out there, putting yourself through competitions and fellowships. And so when you start to get that interest from executives or managers or whatever, it can be really tempting to just jump into bed with the first person who says, hey, you're a great writer. I want to work with you. But you do need to exercise some caution there. Vet them. See this particular company from this contract. I Googled them. I IMDb probed them. and I couldn't find anything about them. So they're clearly not, you know, I'd never heard of them before. And I've been working in the industry for many, many years. So I think you really got to do your due diligence and not uh, rush to sign anything just so you can say that you have a manager or so you can say that you have an option on a project if they're not even paying you for it. Right. It's said over and over again that it's better to be unrepresented than be badly represented. And I think this is a great example of why. And that's because even if magically somehow you don't necessarily understand the gravity of the clauses that they are asking for, there will be repercussions down the line when you want to sign with other people or when you want to create those projects because those managers, quote unquote, and those agents, quote unquote, will be asking for those clauses down the line. And so they will be weighting you down as opposed to pushing you forward, which is something that you want your managers to do. You don't want them to weigh you down. You want them to push you forward. And so that's one example. Now, just to circle back to due diligence. Due diligence is relatively easy to do early on. Nick mentioned an example here with looking them up on IMDb, et cetera, et cetera. But even in the very concept of what it means to sign with a manager and an agent, does it mean literally signing a document? Well, you can ask two different kinds of people. One kind of people will be the people that quote unquote signed with those specific managers and agents. Ask them what is their success rate, their clients I'm talking about, not the, not the actual managers or agents. I'm talking about the clients that you found out about. Ask them what have their experiences been with those people? Have they signed an actual physical contract? Now, presumably in this case, they will probably answer yes, which is why you go to the second type of person, which is people outside of this specific management company that are signed by managers, maybe more reputable managers, and ask them, when you signed with this company or that company that is much more well-known than this one, did you sign a physical piece of paper or was it a good faith agreement? And 99% of the time, it will be a good faith agreement. And that way you will know first-hand accounts from clients, from managers outside of that management company you seek, as well as those from that same management company. And you'll be settled. Yeah. I mean, speaking from experience, I was looking to add a manager to my team a little while back. And I, I talked to a couple of different people. And one of them seemed kind of interesting. And I liked them when I met with them. And they had good ideas. But then, you know, the one thing I wanted to do in order to do my due diligence was talk to one of their other clients and just see, you know, how's this person been doing a good job for you? What kind of jobs have you gotten from it? That sort of thing. And so I asked this person if I could speak to one of their other clients. And then they just ghosted me. They never got emails back. 
my agent checked in with them and this person thought that it was weird that I wanted to talk to their other clients and instantly just <laughs> was no longer interested in representing me. And to me, that was a giant red flag because that means they probably don't have any other clients or maybe, you know, they were repping actors and this is the first writer they were looking to hire, whatever it happens to be. They clearly had something to hide. And if they're not willing to be transparent and allow you to do that, it's a completely normal thing that people ask for all the time. Then even if they look legit and their company looks legit, don't sign with them. To be clear, that also applies to newer and up and coming agents and managers, right? Don't let them fool you into believing, well, I'm the new kid on the block. I don't have any experience or whatever. Or if they are that open, then at least you know what you are getting yourself into. You are partnering with someone who doesn't have that experience, who doesn't have that credit or those different clients and so forth. So whether that is a red flag to you that they've never repped anyone else, that's for you to decide. However, you should be aware of that fact that they've never repped anyone before or the fact that they're new. And if they're willfully disclosing those things, then that's more of a green flag than a red flag, obviously, but it's definitely something to be aware of. There's nothing wrong also with looking at past clients. You should ask to that rep, can you give me a list of your current clients? Or do you have any people that you feel are going to vouch for you that I can get more information about? Because good managers and good agents don't have anything to hide in terms of clients. Maybe they've had past client conflicts. That's perfectly valid. But that doesn't mean that if they're a good manager and a good agent, they should have a good track record with some clients that can vouch for them. Yeah. The manager I did end up signing with was referred by a mutual friend of ours. And we had several other mutual friends who I could talk to and hear about this person's reputation. They already knew other executives that I knew, things like that. And so for me, that was a really good sign. And one of the reasons why I ended up going with them. In general, don't be in a huge rush to sign with the first person who shows interest in you, uh, as flattering as that can be. If your work is good and someone is interested in you, the chances are other people will be too. So take your time and do your research. All right, let's get into some TV writing news. The Guild finally signed an agreement with WME, or should I say WME really signed the agreement with the Guild because the Guild did its business and did what it did. Yeah, this is the culmination of everything that WGA writers have been waiting for. The dominoes were starting to fall piece by piece with the different agencies, and WME was the last one sort of holding out on the agreement. And finally, they agreed to terms. And overall, they're pretty good terms, especially compared to what <laughs> it used to be. I believe they've limited any sort of agency uh, production company ownership to 20%, when previously they sort of owned 100% of these other production entities, and it was causing a huge kind of conflict of interest. And so they've really cut back hugely on the way that uh, agents had been able to kind of package these projects and all the other problematic stuff we've discussed before on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, 20%, I feel like it's still a lot, but obviously concessions had to be made. Clearly, this was the best deal that could be made because it got made. The board, the negotiating committee did tremendously well, especially under pressure from the upper echelons of the WGA. All the big shots were wrecked by all the big agencies. And so they wanted to be back with their agents ASAP. Even looking at someone like David Goodman, who is the president of the Guild West, he put his own career on the line because I'm pretty sure that none of the agencies really want to rep him or be in business with him because he kind of shepherded this whole fight. Exactly. It was a huge risk that the Writers Guild took, but they stood up for what was right and they weren't willing to accept this thing continuing as it had been for the past few decades. 
at the end of the day, they won. And a lot of people said that they couldn't or wouldn't, or old writers would go broke and the industry would collapse before it would happen. And it's clear now that that was just fear mongering and we're all better off for people having taken that stand. Right. And I would say the pandemic probably had a worse effect on employment than uh, any of this nonsense. And I don't mean the nonsense in the, in the negative, uh, the guilt's fight. I just mean the fear mongering is nonsense, obviously. I personally love that we are finally at the close of this. I think we've been following this since the beginning, right? Like it's been at least two years mm -hmm. since we first started talking about uh, this big fight between the guild and the agencies. And uh, it's kind of surreal to see how uh, it's ended. Yeah, certainly. It doesn't mean that all writers' problems are fixed forever. I think that we <laughs> eventually will run into a similar kind of issue with managers being producers, because it's essentially the same thing agencies were doing. The managers just usually didn't have the same huge uh, infrastructure backing them. But we'll see what happens. Let's not forget also that this agreement is going to expire around 2025. So who knows in four years what's going to happen. Hopefully it'll work out. I believe in the guild. So. In terms of more negative news, Nick, do you want to share what's been also going on in the industry? Yeah, sure. The latest round of people receiving their comeuppance and <laughs> consequences for their actions were Gina Carano, who played one of the characters in The Mandalorian, was fired from the show. This was because of a number of really gross stuff that she said on Twitter that was very denigrating to LGBTQ people, trans people in particular, mocking gender pronouns, things like that, and posting a whole bunch of stuff that was basically like Nazi memes. Pretty anti-Semitic stuff, yeah. Yeah, it was super gross, and rightfully so. She was fired from it and berated by Disney for that. And she's come back and said, oh, it's because I'm conservative. <laughs> and the truth of that is that there's plenty of conservatives and Republicans working in Hollywood. They don't all say stuff like that, at least not publicly. So this is just another one of the situations where somebody has done something bad and received what was coming to them. Yeah, there's this weird comment about how she was quote unquote canceled for being conservative and so forth. This is not a disagreement about fiscal policies here, right? Like we're not disagreeing about, oh, should we increase taxes on the 1% or whatever? No, we're talking about someone being a bigot, someone expressing hate and mocking other people for various reasons that we've just listed. So that's not really a disagreement, politically speaking, unless obviously you consider that being conservative is equal to being bigoted. And in that case, I, mean, I guess that's the same thing. And yeah, so then you're digging your own grave. Yeah, exactly. So there's no debate to be had about why the consequences happen. And it was very clearly bigoted comments. Speaking of a comeuppance, there was also some other news that isn't really breaking news. It's more something that has been kind of known for a while, but now it's gaining more momentum. Yeah. So there have been kind of more statements and more of a spotlight. Sean recently on Joss Whedon and his highly problematic behavior over the years on the sets of the various TV shows and movies that he's been on. A lot of people coming out and making statements describing what he has done to people, which amounts to abuse. And it seems like hopefully he's finally also going to feel the actual consequences of his actions rather than hiding behind this kind of faux feminist mask that he's been putting on for so long. Right. Especially disheartening for all the fans of his shows like Buffy and Angel. I mean, I'm obviously a huge Buffy and Angel fan. We even had an episode once upon a time about Buffy on this podcast. But overall, you have to remember that TV is a collaborative medium. We say this all the time. If you are a fan of those shows and those movies, you have to try to dissociate and not necessarily forgive, obviously, just reading. I'm not saying this at all. In fact, he should meet his end the way it should be met. But in terms of the content itself, there's so many people that have worked on these projects, or whether it's actors or writers or directors and everybody else on crew and around the show, that we should not necessarily deprive them of their paycheck because of one person. 
who really corrupted that entire uh, workplace. That's why I'm hoping that there's going to be some sort of consequence for Just Whedon. I mean, retroactively speaking, we saw that, quote unquote, his new show, The Nevers on HBO, he was let go from that show, I believe, at the end of last year. So maybe The Nevers is better because of it. Now, I don't know. The show hasn't come out yet. But nonetheless, you have to sometimes separate those two things. It's not easy. I feel like those two things are also intrinsically tied together because of the way they were made. But I see those movements of boycotting those shows and so forth. And to me, as someone who works in the industry, it kind of hurts a little bit of my heart because I just think of all the people that worked on those shows that are suffering those financial consequences on top of all the ethical, moral, physical or trauma, all those things, even more so because of the actions of this person. Yeah, exactly. It's always a difficult kind of situation to reconcile that. And it always comes down to your own individual beliefs about the morality or the ethics or the economics of doing that. However, like Alex says, it's important to remember that you don't want to necessarily have the other people on the show to be punished twice, once by having to work with this person and then once by being boycotted because of their specific behavior. So obviously up to you how you want to respond to this, but it's useful to have all the information there. All right. Last but certainly not least, a couple of OTT news on more lighter fares. One is CBS All Access, as you might have heard, is rebranded now as Paramount Plus, which will also regroup Showtime, I think, although that might be a separate tier. But overall, they launched a huge campaign and rolled those ads during the latest the Super Bowl on CBS, combining all their IPs into one series of ads. Did you watch those ads? I'm assuming so because of Super Bowl. I did. Yeah, no, I saw them. They were, they were pretty funny. I was actually kind of confused because I thought that Paramount Plus was like a new streaming service that was coming out on top of CBS All Access access and all these other things. I mean, the messaging, I feel like sometimes with these things is a little bit (laughs) difficult. Same way as like HBO Max, people were like, well, is this HBO? Is it not? What's going on? Yet another something plus streaming service joins the the ranks of all the other something pluses. Yeah, it was especially confusing because during that hour of content and advertising, they were obviously also advertising CBS shows. But to see those shows, they were advertising them to be on CBS All Access. So it was a lot of mixed messages here. They might have had like a whole messaging system where they show the transition from CBS All Access to Paramount Plus. But instead, they kind of introduced the concept of Paramount Plus, but not in the context of CBS All Access. It was sort of two different services. But yes, we will see how many OTT services we'll have by the end of the 2020s. I think it'll be like Whack-A-Mole where another one pops up and you got to Keep track of it. Yeah, it's going to be streaming service plus plus next. Yes. <laughs> Square. And next up, uh, last but not least, something that maybe you are very excited about, uh, because I know you've been rewatching the classic show Frasier, and there's a Frasier revival that was recently announced. Yeah, that's something that I'm very excited about. You know, I'd only ever seen bits and pieces of Frasier when it originally aired when I was younger. And I don't know if it was, I wasn't quite the right age to appreciate the humor and stuff that went into it. But more recently in the last year or so, watched through the entire show. And now conveniently, (laughs) the timing is right. There's a a revival coming up. So I'm excited to see what they do with that. I hope it's not just sort of a bunch of people sitting around on couches talking about stories from the set. And it is actually more of a uh, scripted kind of experience. Yeah, it does look to be a scripted experience, I will say that seems to be the trend now in terms of new content produced for OTTs. For a while now, and it's still the case, OTTs, networks, and studios were rebooting IPs, hard reboots, 
or soft reboots, but nonetheless, a reboot of that IP, generally speaking. And now I find that there's a new trend that's happening, and that is the limited series revival of that show. And it kind of started with Will and Grace, and now we have Frasier and also CSI. CSI Vegas was announced for CBS, whether that's for Paramount Plus or CBS All Access, who knows. But that was announced. And I know there's a couple more quote-unquote limited series revivals are happening in the coming months and years. So clearly a new trend to watch out for. I don't know if that is really helpful in terms of creating new jobs in this industry, but at least it's some more content. Yeah, for sure. I don't think it's hurting anybody at the very least. All right. Well, don't forget that we are on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, and we can keep producing a great show like this for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 208. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions that you want answered on this podcast, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co and what are we doing next week? Next week, we are doing a very special episode entitled Survivor Hollywood. We're going to be breaking out the tiki torches. <laughs> We're going to be talking about how do you get through this this crazy industry? How do you make sustainable living as a writer and get through maybe some of the issues that you might face, whether that be mental health, financially, all of that kind of stuff. This is just an overall how to survive in Hollywood guide. All right. Well, we'll see you next week. We'll see you then.